Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for allowing us to be here to sing your praises. And now, Lord, to study your word. May your spirit be our teacher. We give you this time. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Can you uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 17? If If you've been coming for a while, you know we're in chapter 17. If you're watching online, God bless you. Good to see, uh, have people uh, studying with us online. But we are uh, currently studying Revelation chapter 17. We'll finish the chapter next week. But there's so much here. As we have said, chapters 17 and 18 form the final parenthesis of the book. And uh, what these parentheses are, these chapters, they are kind of flashbacks and kind of uh, go back into something that's already taken place to give us a little more detail. Well, these chapters in chapter 17 and 18 give us a more uh, flashback and give us a more detailed look at the fall of Babylon, which uh, has already really occurred in chapter 16. And um, chapter 17 focuses on the spiritual Babylon, uh, the religious Babylon, chapter 18 on the commercial Babylon. Babylon, and um, this is the final world empire that we're talking about. So guys, once again, let's start with verse 1, just to get a running start at tonight's study. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication And on her forehead her name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so guys, once again in our studies in chapter 17, we have first of all been trying to determine who or what this woman is who is called Mystery Babylon the Great. And as we said last time, there are many uh, Protestants and evangelicals who believe that she is none other than than the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, while I believe, this is a little reviewing from last time, while I believe that the Roman Catholic Church is part of this false religious system called Mystery Babylon, I think that this harlot is much bigger than just the Roman Catholic Church. She is called the mother of all harlots on the face of the earth. In other words, whoever or whatever this woman is, She's pretty much been around since the beginning of humanity, since the beginning of human history, uh, thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church got started. As we looked at last time, the first false religious system on the face of the earth was started by a man named Nimrod, who built the Tower of Babel. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 11. As we said last week, the place where the Tower of Babel once stood later became Babylon. So Babel became Babylon, the mother of all harlots, or in other words, the source 
of all false religious systems on the face of the earth. If you weren't here last week, you can go online and listen to the study because we developed this in great detail because it's critical for our understanding of the passage we're in uh, in chapter 17. But I, I, guys, as I said before, I believe the final world religion will be a composite of all false religions, or at least uh, of most of them. Maybe not all, I think probably all, but uh, will be a composite of all false religions. But I also believe the Roman Catholic Church will be instrumental in bringing them all together. Uh, if I haven't mentioned it, let me do it right now. I think Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, is an invaluable resource on the subject of the history of the Roman Catholic Church. It will help you understand even as we study Revelation 17. But once again, I think that the Roman Catholic Church is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a world church, a world church, bringing people of all faiths together. In fact, she has been positioning herself for that role for a long time. You know, Pope John Paul II uh, served as Pope for 26 years until his death in April of 2005. He was without a doubt the most popular Pope in my lifetime and maybe of all time. Maybe of all time. Many Catholics revered him and looked at him as a, a seminal leader, not only of the Roman Catholic Church, but really a world leader they looked at him as. Now, John Paul II definitely saw himself as a uniter, a uniter whose main purpose as Pope was to bring the religions of the world together. How do I know that? Because he said it openly. He said it openly. In addressing 1,500 leaders of the great world religions, that's how it was cast, okay? We wouldn't say they were so great, but they're the big ones, okay? But in addressing 1,500 leaders of the great world religions at the international prayer meeting in 2001, here's what John Paul II said, and I'm quoting him, we can no longer bear the scandal of division. Now he's talking to all the major religions of the world. We can no longer bear the scandal of religion. In other words, what he is saying is the world's religions must come together and present to the world a united front. Why? Because we're all really the same thing, basically, is what he's saying. I mean, we're all really one. In 2002, Pope John Paul called the meeting for peace in Assisi, uh, Assisi, Italy, and leaders from the Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant religions all attended. They all came at the beck and call of Pope John Paul II. That's how much the religious leaders of the world held him in high esteem and viewed him as a uniter and probably the de facto leader of all religions on the face of the earth. Now, interesting, at this meeting, the name of Jesus Christ was not mentioned one time. Was not mentioned one time. And um, all Christian symbols, including crosses, were all covered so as not to offend anyone and to promote unity. Now, in Galatians 5, verse 11, Paul the Apostle says that only the uh, enemies of God uh, consider the cross an offense. Those that persecute the truth. If you're thinking to yourself, 
how the Roman Catholic Church, a supposed Christian denomination, could host such an ecumenical gathering, you don't really understand the Roman Catholic Church's position on the matter. You don't understand their thinking. Let me quote to you from Vatican II. This is their official uh, doctrinal statement. Official Catholic, Catholic doctrine in Vatican II states, and I'm quoting, the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in other religions. Their doctrines often reflect a ray of truth which enlightens all men. Let Christians preserve and encourage the spiritual and moral truths found among non-Christians, So the Catholic Church is sounding more and more like the mother church of a one-world religion. They have been for many years. When asked, can you still get to heaven without Jesus? Nigerian Cardinal Francis Arinze, the Pope, this will be uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, the Pope's deputy for outreach answered. Now, look at the question. Listen to the question. Can you get to heaven without Jesus? Here's what this Catholic Cardinal said, and I'm quoting him. Expressly, yes. God's grant of salvation includes not only Christians, but Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and people of goodwill. And so this Catholic cardinal expressed what the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches on the subject of salvation. Remember, he's the head of their outreach program. So he's speaking for the church. And... Um, He's basically saying that all that's required to get to heaven is to just be a person of goodwill, whatever that means. Now, in case you're thinking that, you know, the good, the good cardinal was speaking for himself and not really representing uh, the position of the Roman Catholic Church, what they actually believe about how a person gets to heaven, I'll draw your attention to what the current pope said on the subject. In March of 2013, the current pope, whose name, his birth name was Jorge Mario Bergoglio, was elected the 266th pope of the Roman Catholic Church, taking the name Francis, thus becoming Pope Francis. In May of 2013, so just two months later, in a message he preached in his official capacity as pope, he said that God has redeemed. Now notice, God has redeemed, not can redeem or will redeem anyone who repents and receives Christ. But God has redeemed atheists with the blood of Christ. And so the current Pope has gone on record as saying that all people, I guess of goodwill, no matter what religion they belong to, what they believe, or if they don't believe anything, about what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about salvation, that's okay because they're covered under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They're heaven-bound, even atheists. The Roman Catholic Church has gone on record basically saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't save a person. That, uh, that all that's required to get into heaven uh, is sincerity and whatever you happen to believe doesn't really matter because after all 
all roads lead to heaven. Right? Apparently the Catholic Church believes that. Now, if you remember uh, Mother Teresa, who was a Catholic nun before she died, for years she took care of some of the world's poorest people in Calcutta, India. And praise God, to her credit, that was a rough gig, and she did it for years, right? And she said that her goal in her ministry was to help Christians be the best Christians they can be. Well, that's good. But she went on. And Buddhists to be the best Buddhists they can be. Hindus to be the best Hindus they can be. Because apparently in her mind, every religion will lead to God if those practicing their faith are sincere. People of goodwill. Uh, one r Christian writer uh, in talking about uh, Mother Teresa, said, you know, even though she gave her life to helping poor people, it doesn't matter too much if the, in the course of your ministry you make sure that people have full tummies, they, they are able to lay in hospitals on soft beds and clean sheets, if all you're doing is launching them into a Christless eternity with a full stomach from those clean sheets. All roads lead to God. Is that what we believe? Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. You can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. The Bible never says that God counts sincerity for righteousness. It says he counts faith in his truth for righteousness. Of course, Matthew 7, we've talked about it before. I'll read it to you. You know it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The wide gate... Jesus talked about, is not marked this way to hell. Satan's much too clever and subtle for that. It's marked this way to God. Or this way to heaven if a person believes in heaven. What makes it so appealing to people is that it's broad, it's tolerant, it's inclusive. It makes no demands in a person's life. You can pretty much live any way you want, taking this road or so you're taught, so you're told, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're a person of goodwill. I mean, if you had two ways, one was a very broad and easy road, and one was a very difficult, narrow, winding, rocky road, and you're told both them lead to heaven, well, what would you choose? Right? The problem is they don't lead to heaven. Jesus said the broad way leads to destruction, leads to hell, and many are going down its path because they have been fed a lie that the way to God is the broad way. Again, tolerant, inclusive, not demanding of anything, just, you know, whatever you want to believe, however you want to live, doesn't matter, as long as you're sincere. Whereas the narrow way, well, it's the way of the cross, it's the way of Christ, Jesus Christ, in John fourteen six, who said, I am the way 
the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Again, guys, if sincerity was all that God was looking for, what was the Great Commission all about? Think about that. If people from all faiths get to heaven by simply being sincere, why didn't Jesus tell us that when he came to the earth? Why did Jesus command his church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone we came in contact with? And for that matter, why did millions of Christian missionaries have to die over the centuries? Have to die, had to die for as martyrs of the faith um, if the gospel was simply be sincere in whatever you believe. Because that wasn't the true gospel. That was a false gospel. That, guys, is the message of the apostate church, the coming world church, the mystery Babylon church that will dominate the world after the rapture. The church that Paul said would rise during the last days. The word apostasy means a departure from the faith. Now listen, there has always been those who have departed from the truth of Christianity to follow, you know, heresy in some form. First uh, John 2.19, John says, look, many have gone out from us. They've left our group, the true church. Many have gone out from us, but they were never really one of us. Because if they had been one of us, if they had been true, born-again believers, they would have remained with us. He's not talking about somebody backsliding. He's talking about someone renouncing the faith, turning once and for all away, and going some other way, some other path, some other, you know, some other religion. If they had been one of us, they would have remained with us. But because they have departed, they have proven, I'm paraphrasing, they were never really a true believer. Guys, again, I mean, the church has always had apostates that stay for a while, but then who show their true colors by departing from the Christian faith, sometimes to join a, a so-called Christian cult like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, um, or sometimes they even start a cult like Joseph Smith Jr. did, started the Mormon church. Was raised in the church. Um, believed in Jesus Christ. And... Uh, an angel appeared to him one day and told him that all the churches in the world were corrupt, that the true message of God's gospel has been lost. And so he was being called by God to become uh, a prophet to the, to the nations to give them the true gospel. What is the true gospel? That really, if you live an exemplary life, you can eventually ascend to godhood. Hinduism. Mormonism is a blend of Christianity and Hinduism. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's just a perversion of Christianity. But um, there are a lot of folks that come to church. They maybe have grown up in the church. And at one point, though, they leave. They are convinced that the, truth, that, that the church that they grew up in or the, the Christian church in general is all, all corrupt. And... Uh, God is calling them to do to start a new thing, right? So again, um, there has always been apostates in the church who hang around for a while, then eventually leave, show their true colors. That's true. But listen, this is something different that we're talking about right now. Um, this departure, Paul brings it up. Uh, we're going to read that in a moment. But this end times departure from the truth 
uh, is something different from what we have seen throughout the history of the church. This is going to mark, guys, a wholesale departure, a wholesale exodus from biblical Christianity. Unlike anything the church has ever seen before, people are going to leave in droves in numbers that are unimaginable to an apostate religious system that claims to represent the true God, but is in fact a harlot who is unfaithful to God. This will take place during the great or the tribulation period. It, it kind of reminds us of what Jesus said in, John, in Luke 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, when he returns, will he really find faith on the earth? The faith. The one that Jude talked about. How God is committed to his saints the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. What is the faith? It's New Testament theology, doctrine. Uh, rooted in Christ, of course. Of course, the Old Testament is also looking forward to Christ and the cross, but uh, New Testament uh, is, uh, is looking back to the cross. Uh, it's all rooted in Jesus, right? And um, when Jesus returns, is he really going to find the faith on the earth? Now, guys, this departure from the true faith is something, again, that Paul warned us about in 2 Thessalonians 2. If you want to turn there, we have talked about this before. So I won't belabor it, but I want to touch on it again, since this is what we are looking at, this very issue. So, first, uh, second, I'm sorry, did I say first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Starting at verse 1, where Paul said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, now that is the Greek word apostasia, we get our English word apostasy from that Greek word. Um, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the great apostasy, and the man of sin, Antichrist, is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, guys, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, I believe... And there are Christians who say, well, look, um, the word apostasia could, is, is departure, all right? This could be a reference to the rapture, uh, that, you know, that the, the, the falling away, or actually the, the departure is the rapture. When I taught 2 Thessalonians, I really dug into this to see if anybody else felt that way, and I couldn't find one single commentator who actually held to that view. They all said the Greek word apostasia is always a departing from the truth or the faith. All right? Now, let me say this, or you a little curveball, all right? I don't believe this is talking about the rapture, but I do believe it's something that takes place after the rapture. So the rapture actually opens the door for what Paul is talking about, even if it isn't the thing that he's directly speaking of. What in the world am I talking about? All right, here it is. When the rapture happens, every true believer on the face of the earth is going to be gone. Is going to be gone. 
all you're going to have left is unbelievers. Some religious, some secular. You get the idea, right? So all that's left on the earth are people that, you know, and a lot of them, I should say, are going to be people that went to Christian churches. Like John said, they, they were with us for a while, then they left. They started cult churches or just false churches, right? All the apostasy that you're going to see in the world at this time is because all true believers are gone. There's nothing restraining people anymore from getting into error. It's all error now. It's all error. And um, so this great apostasy, why does why the great apostasy happen? Because the truth is gone. All true believers are out of here. And that's why you have such a great apostasy, because all the true Christians are gone. All right. Now, getting back to how the Roman Catholic Church will spearhead a great ecumenical movement, uniting all the religions of the world um, into a world church, except, of course, those practicing biblical Christianity, the tribulation saints, right? They won't, uh, they won't get involved. But um, to hear the Roman Catholic Church even now talking, about uh, all the religions of the world coming together. Let me um, have you listen to the following quote. John Paul II, on more than one occasion, gathered together for prayer, there at the Vatican, witch doctors, spiritists, animists. What's an, what is animism? It's the belief that objects, places, and creatures uh, all possess a distinct spiritual essence. So the trees have a spirit, and the rocks have a spirit, and the animals have a spirit. This was really popularized and pushed uh, with Disney's uh, movie Pocahontas. Remember at one point how she's talking about the wind and the animals? Everything has a spirit. That's animism. It was very popular among Native Americans. Probably still is, Okay. But John Paul II, on more than one occasion, gathered there at the Vatican uh, for prayer witch doctors, spiritists, animists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and other leaders of world religions and declared that they were all, quoting him, praying to the same God and credited their prayers with generating, again, his quote, profound spiritual energies that would create a new climate for peace in the world, end quote. Of course, if you were raised in the Roman Catholic Church as I was, we didn't know any of this stuff. It wasn't until after I got saved and became an evangelical Christian that I started really studying what the church teaches. And I was shocked. I was so ignorant to what the church really believed. Of course, you, didn't, you don't get that. It's kind of like Mormons. Around the holidays, you know, you, they used to have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir around Christmas time, and and uh, you know, I thought growing up Mormons were just really good Christians because they only show you that side to, to hook you. But once you dig a little deeper, oh my goodness, it gets very bizarre, dark, and so on. Okay, um, the same is true with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, uh, with the commercials, come on home. You know, well, home to what? Okay, uh, no, thank you. But 
we can we, we can see how all this ecumenism is being used by the devil to bring the world religions together and again after all true believers in jesus christ are removed from the earth at the time of the rapture what will be left on the earth will be a mixture of apostates from christianity roman catholics protestants even those who attended bible churches like ours do you think every person that comes to calvary elk grove is really born again i'd like to think so but i know better i know better When the rapture happens, all that is left on the will be left on the earth is a mixture of apostates from Christianity, along with pagan religions, cults, and other isms, Mormonism and uh, and Hinduism, and so on. Right? Uh, that's all that's going to be left, and they're going to quickly federate under the umbrella of a one-world religion. And again, they will, together will join this great global religious movement, which again I believe is headed by the Roman Catholic, will be headed by the Roman Catholic Church, that may call itself a church. I don't know what they're going to call themselves. They may call themselves a church, a world church. The Bible calls them will uh, calls them the great harlot, the great harlot. Look at Revelation six seventeen verse six. John said, "I saw the woman drunk. This is the woman riding the beast." I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I marveled with great amazement translates a Greek phrase that is literally, I marveled a great marvel. And which can also be translated, I was greatly astonished. The New Living Translation puts it this way, I stared at her in complete amazement. Now, many Catholic apologists claim that what John is seeing is pagan Rome, not Roman Catholic, you know, uh, not Roman Catholic Rome. Well, if John was seeing pagan Rome, he would not have been astonished or marveled with great amazement. Why? Because John knew pagan Rome. And in John's day, pagan Rome was already killing Christians. And so that would not have amazed or shocked him. This is something different. This is not pagan Rome killing Christians. No, what shocked John down to his, the core of his being was that he sees the so-called Christian church. Again, I think that the Roman Catholic Church is the head and all the other religions are gathered under her, she's kind of like the umbrella that gathers all these religions together. But the dominant religion is going to be the Roman Catholic Church or the Christian Church, supposedly. And John sees the so-called Christian Church killing the true saints. These would be tribulation saints, of course, during the tribulation period. And what really shocks him, it was all being done under the banner, under the banner of Christ and Christianity. In other words, those killing God's true people are doing it, are doing so thinking that they are serving God. Now, this is something that Jesus prophesied in John 16, verses 2 and 3. He said, there's coming a day when those who kill you, speaking to his disciples, there's coming a day when those who kill you will think they're serving God. In the short term, 
it was the Jewish people, the religious leaders of Israel, persecuting the Jewish converts to Christianity. Later on, the bigger picture was the Muslims killing Christians, Jews and Gentiles, right? The ultimate fulfillment is going to be the Antichrist and his followers killing the true people of God. Ray Steadman, author, pastor at one time, he said, and I quote, Remember the last line in verse 6. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Why was John so astonished? At the time John recorded his vision, the church in Rome was the church of the catacombs. It was a persecuted and suffering church, having no earthly power and no worldly influence. Undoubtedly, it came as a great surprise to John to see that the suffering church he knew in Rome would one day become a great and powerful force dominating the kings of the earth while prostituting its own truths, end quote. Guys, remember that John is a first century guy that God transports 2,000 years into the future. The first century church, as Stedman rightly points out, the first century church that John knew was poor was a poor and persecuted church. They were hiding in, in catacombs in Rome. It was a small and suffering church. But the church that John is looking at in Revelation 17, well, uh, she's a very wealthy church, wealthy beyond imagination, actually. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She has in her hand a golden uh, goblet, a golden chalice, but this thing is full of, uh, of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, verse 4 tells us. But not only that, she's a powerful church. She's riding the beast. And in this context, the beast is the Antichrist government. She's riding it. She's steering it. She's in control when John first sees this. In other words, she is a worldwide church. And most shockingly of all, she is drunk with the blood of the true saints of Jesus. In other words, she is killing the followers of Jesus Christ by the thousands and by the hundreds of thousands. Can you imagine John seeing a church that claims to be the church of Jesus Christ killing the actual true saints of God, the actual true followers of Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm sure John was thinking to himself, how is this possible? I mean, what kind of hideous aberration of the church of Jesus Christ Am I looking at? How, how can this be? This is, not the, this is not the church I remember. Of course not, John. But it is the church that Jesus warned us about was coming. Turn to Matthew 13. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. Let me just quickly look at it again. Matthew 13. Starting with verse 31. Matthew 13 contains the seven kingdom parables. Listen, listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 13, verse 31, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Uh, some translations say a great tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now we looked at this a few weeks ago, but basically... 
if you know anything about mustard seeds, and I had to study because I'm not a farmer, I don't grow things. But mustard seeds are extremely small seeds. And when they're planted, they often grow into large bushes, sometimes 10 feet tall. But they don't grow into great trees that allow all the birds of the air to come lodge in its branches. In parables, birds are representative of the devil and his demons. And here Jesus is presenting something. He's saying, look, and I'm going to paraphrase, the church is going to grow into a monstrosity, something that God never intended it to be. And instead of being bearing the fruit of righteousness, it's going to become a place where all the demons, all the de demons and, and the devil's forces that are promoting his lies on the earth, it's going to come and take refuge in the branches of this tree. In other words, at one point, the church was going to be the largest purveyor of lies in the world. I have to say, again, the Roman Catholic Church fits that bill. Not that the Catholic Church doesn't do some good. They have some good social services, and they do uh, good things in a lot of ways. But when it comes to the most important thing they do, which is to represent God and give people the truth, they fail miserably. Theirs is a false religious system, and I don't care how well-intentioned Catholics are. I was one of them. I don't care how well-intentioned a Catholic is, how faithfully they uh, adhere to the, uh, to the doctrines of the church and so on and so forth. If you start out with false information, it can't lead you to a good place. And that's what Jesus really was warning us about. He, he was warning us in Matthew 13 of what John is looking at at the end of human history in Revelation 17. Back to Revelation 17, verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The angel asked John, why did you marvel? In response to what John said at the end of verse 6, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And then the angel gives to John, and by extension all of us who are reading John's book, the angel gives to John the explanation of what the beast is, that John sees the harlot writing. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. You got that? Can we move on? It's all clear now, right? Hey, Thank God for the angel who sees John is confused, right? Marveling. I don't get this. I mean, thank God that the angel comes, steps up and comes to John's aid and, uh, you know, and clears up for us <laughs> any confusion on the subject of who or what this beast is. The problem is the angel's explanation seems to raise more questions than it answers. In fact, uh, as we read the, the angel's explanation, we're kind of scratching our heads going, say what? 
what, What are you talking about, right? Look, part of the answer lies in what we have been saying for a few weeks now. In that sometimes the word beast is used to represent the final world empire. Sometimes the word beast in Revelation is used to represent the leader of that kingdom or empire. And sometimes the word is used to represent both. Here, both are in view. The beast represents the final world empire and its leader, the Antichrist. The reason is because Scripture views the final world empire as being inseparable from its leader, much like Hitler was always seen as inseparable from his Third Reich. So it's hard to separate the two. Sometimes they are used almost interchangeably in Scripture, um, but not always. Not always. So you have to read the context carefully to determine, is the Antichrist in view? Is this one world government in view, or are they both in view? Now, getting back to the angel's explanation. Don't let the language confuse you. Let's go through it. When the angel says at the beginning of verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not. And then at the end of the verse, the angel says, The beast that was and is not and yet is. Again, you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is he talking about? The beast that was and was not, yet is. What does that mean? Well, understand the angel's explanation takes us back to something that's already happened. Something we've already studied in chapter 13, if you turn there. In Revelation 13, let's just read verses 1 to 3. John said, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, because of the personal pronoun in the phrase, his deadly wound in verse 3, it indicates that what's in view here is the leader, the Antichrist, and not his empire as a whole. All right. Many commentators believe that someone is going to try to assassinate the Antichrist. They base that on Revelation 13, verse 3, but also on Zechariah 11, verse 17. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 11, verse 17. Woe to the worthless shepherd. Now, many believe that is a uh, reference to the Antichrist. Who, lo- who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm, shall be, his arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. 
And so most evangelical scholars believe that someone is going to try to assassinate the Antichrist, which shocks us, really. Think about it. It shocks most of us because we think that the whole world will enthusiastically follow this guy. We, we are kind of taught to believe that when he comes, the true Christians won't follow him, but the rest of the world is going to be enthusiastically in his camp. That's not true. That's not true. You can read Daniel 11. And you'll read about the conflict the Antichrist has with many nations and armies of the world who don't love this guy. Okay? Um, <laughs> not everyone's going to love this world leader. Not everyone. Just like not everyone loved Hitler. You know, there was upwards of 20 different assassination attempts on his life. I googled it today and counted 22. I heard one author say it was around 30. 30 times people tried to assassinate Hitler. Not everybody loved Hitler. And, not, and the same is, true, is going to be true with the Antichrist. Not all unbelievers are going to love him or want to follow him. And one of his enemies, or maybe a group that have binded together, banded together, I should say, uh, will try to take him out. Probably a gunshot wound to the head, leaving his right eye blind and his right arm paralyzed I believe that this assassination attempt is going to take place right at the end of the first three and a half years now next week I'll tell you why but I believe this assassination attempt is going to happen right at the end of the first three and a half years just before the midpoint of the tribulation period he is going to look for all intents and purposes the people of the world are going to think he's dead all right, he's dead. We're not told how long he will appear to be dead. My guess is three days. We're not told how long he will appear to be dead, but suddenly at one point, he's going to be miraculously resurrected. I say three days, that's my guess, because I believe Satan's going to try to use this to counterfeit the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I personally don't believe the Antichrist will be actually dead because I don't believe Satan has the power to raise the dead. However, it isn't going to matter because Satan will present such a convincing counterfeit death and resurrection that the whole world will think, will believe it was genuine. This is going to give rise, this is going to shift the Antichrist popularity into overdrive and set the stage for the last three and a half years when he will be worshipped as a god. We'll talk about that more next time. And so we get back to Revelation 17. When the angel tells John, the beast was and is not and yet is, he is talking about how the Antichrist was alive, then dead, assassinated. I say dead in quotation marks. I don't think he's really going to be dead. And then alive again through a pseudo-resurrection. So the beast, John, was and is not and yet is. The Antichrist is going to be alive, then look dead, and then come back to life. That's what the angel is talking about. All right. Now, we have to leave it there because there's too much that we don't have enough time to cover what's uh, coming after this verse in Revelation 17. Uh, let me just say... Uh, that this whole idea of these mountains um, 
very important that we understand what uh, these mountains are that this beast is is riding. Okay, or this, um, uh, yeah, that, that, that you know talks about the, these seven mountains and the beast. Uh, very important that we understand what they are, if we're going to understand what's going on. All right, uh, so hang in there. Uh, we'll come back next week, finish chapter 17, but there's just too much to kind of rush through in the little time we have left. We'll break a little earlier tonight than usual, but I just want you to understand that uh, this chapter is pivotal. We've, we've spent a lot of time on Revelation 17 because it deals with the spiritual Babylon or the world church. And listen, this world church is not going to materialize out of thin air, uh, thin air, and just all of a sudden there it is. This The groundwork has been been laid for many many centuries really and um you know so uh you know didn't paul say the the mystery of iniquity is already at work he said that two thousand years ago i mean the devil was laying the groundwork for the final world scenario uh since the garden of eden really after he lost and after he uh, got adam and eve to eat the forbidden fruit and the human race fell and god pronounced the curse and that shifted everything into a spiritual warfare mode and the devil has been working for many centuries um, to lay the groundwork for what we're going actually what we're studying here in revelation 17 and then soon 18 um, but the final scenario the final world governing empire that is a spiritual aspect and a commercial aspect this is what is being laid out in these chapters and this is why we've taken our time because if there's coming a world church look uh, already satan's lies are um, have infected so many lives that will come gladly enthusiastically together when this world church is started and um, so we'll we'll get back into this next time so come on back. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us, well, your word that uh, not only teaches us how to live right now, but also teaches us what's coming. Uh, and of course, Lord, I don't believe we are going to be here as your true church to see the Antichrist and the final um, apostate church and so on, but it's here among us right now. And we have to contend earnestly for the faith right now um, against the devil's lies so that we can keep as many people as possible from entering into this false religious system and being taken captive by the devil who will lead them down the path of destruction. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.